You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. It's a sad fact in the United States, as well as almost every other country in the world, your children will be approached by another kid, and they will be offered a substance that you don't want them to take. Former LAPD Deputy Chief Glenn Levant. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, if you are of a certain age, there's a good chance that you, or your kids perhaps, participated in the D.A.R.E. program in school. The D.A.R.E. program, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, was launched in 1983 by then-LAPD Chief Daryl Gates. Its first executive director was Gates's deputy chief, a man named Glenn Levant, and the D.A.R.E. program eventually reached millions of American school kids. But did it work? Did it keep them off drugs? Well, I met Glenn Levant in 1998, when he and the D.A.R.E. program co-authored a book called Keeping Kids Drug-Free. And listen, later in this interview, he reveals a startling statistic. So here now from 1998, Glenn Levant. It's clear that there's an epidemic of drugs in the United States, and prevention can and will help. And we're doing a good job with D.A.R.E., which is drug abuse resistance education in the schools. We're doing a good job in the schools, but it all begins at home with the parent. Tip O'Neill once said that all politics is local. Well, you know, all solutions to problems are local too. And nothing gets more localized than your home, your home. And let's face it, the most influential person in a children, in a child's life, the most influential person is the parent, the head of the household. And you're the role model. You're the one they play dress up to emulate. You're the one that they want to be like when they get older. You're the one that establishes the family standards. The family values has been kind of overdone, but the expectations as to what is acceptable in our family. And I wrote this book so that parents can have those conversations with their children early enough and often enough to ensure that their children can survive childhood, teenage years, and adulthood and remain drug-free. I must say, both my daughters went through the D.A.R.E. program at school. You see the D.A.R.E. bumper stickers all over Montgomery County, and it's uh, it certainly worked. But I, I also know that there's a fair number of parents whom I met who are a little, just a little perplexed about what they are expected to do. Are they, I think there are some parents who think that when the kids come home with the brochure and they've had the, the police officer come and talk with them and they get a bumper sticker and the t- and the T-shirt and everything, everything's fine until next year when we do it again. Well, unfortunately, that that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Um, school-based prevention and programs like D.A.R.E. Are, are terrific programs, and it does help the kids engage in conversation with their parents about this. But the parents really have to initiate these conversations. Look, it's a sad fact in, in, in the United States, as, as well as almost every other country in the world today, your children will be approached by another kid, and they will be offered a substance that you don't want them to take. It could be tobacco, it could be alcohol, it could be one of the 1,400 or so household products that can be sniffed and abused. It could be marijuana, it could be even worse things. It will happen, though. And just like a parent would train their children not to cross the street against a red light, you are obligated as a parent, it's your job as a parent, to prepare your children for the inevitable 
that they are going to be approached by another kid, and here's how you deal with it. This is what our family expects you to do about it, and this book is full of tips that will help parents have those discussions with kids. You should start this about two years old, by the way. There are temptations that kids face with drugs that they don't normally face with other things that parents, the dangers that parents protect them from. Well, one of the the things that always amazes me is that when I talk about talking to children as early as two and three years old, most people have a, a, a medicine rule that medicine's kept out of reach, out of sight of their kids. But, you know, I think we all know as parents that we're fooling ourselves if we think the children don't know where it is and how to get to it. They know where everything is mm-hmm. in the house. And I child-proof my house. You child-proof your house. You probably put locks on the mm-hmm. under the kitchen cabinet so that the kids can't get to the solvents and things. But did we ever have a conversation with the kids and tell them why they can't get into that cabinet? Why shouldn't? Why do we lock up the Clorox? Why do we lock up the solvents? Why do we lock up these things? You're just going to say it's poison? Um, are you just going to say, don't do it because I say, don't do it? I mean, let's take the opportunity to have a conversation with children as to why we're doing these things. And that, if you started early enough, is going to help in the future. You're much less likely to succumb to a friend giving you a, a rag soaked in some solvent and say, here, sniff this. It'll make you feel dizzy and good. You know, if you know that it's poisonous stuff and what it does, does to your, um, your health. How do you, how graphic do you need to be with younger kids? Well, you know, children know what feeling bad is, you know, and, and I'm not saying you want to scare our children. We certainly don't want to scare our children. And, and we certainly don't want to tell them anything, you know, that's inaccurate. But even when you take medicine at home, um, do you want to, do you want your children to know why you're taking medicine? Uh, and you don't want to overdo it. If you tell your kids that I take this headache remedy because I have a terrible headache, and I feel really good after I take these you know, these pills. I've seen kids in playgrounds with headache pills, giving them to other kids, you know, wanting them to feel good too, because parents haven't explained who gets to give you medicine. Medicine is given by mom, dad, medical people, or another trusted adult that mom and dad, you know, say that they can. But when a child gets into kindergarten or first grade, and they get all of the influences of the other kids that are there that are bringing their collective experiences and the kids all talk Mm -hmm. you know you need to start talking about tobacco you need to talk about smoking drinking perhaps worse you know depending on what's going on in your neighborhood and and you can use lots of opportunities to do that let me ask you something that has plagued me for a long time my my two daughters one who's 17 one who's 15 grew up in a household of non-smokers very, very light drinkers, uh, rarely even a can of beer in the house, and nothing illegal, uh, maybe once in a while a Maalox or an aspirin or something like that, and both of them are now smokers, and both of them drink from time to time, and both of them have tried marijuana. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, and I know that it's something that, that you're working on to mm-hmm. to prevent, but what usually happens is that their friends will smoke the kids that they associate with. <clears throat> one of the things we teach in D.A.R.E. is what we call strength in numbers. That's one of the techniques of avoiding situations. And, you know, if if you can monitor who your children are associating with, and if you can take the time to talk to the parents of your friends, uh, of your children's friends, uh, find out what their attitudes are, um, you'll you'll be light years ahead of just letting your children play with whoever happens to be available in the neighborhood. Um, look, the tobacco industry 
as a result of these lawsuits, just released some documents uh, or had them pried out of them, um, talking about how they tried to get kids involved in smoking at the age of 12 so they'd have a customer for 25 years. Liquor industry is certainly doing the same thing. When's the last time you saw a beer commercial with fat old people, you know, on the, uh, on the beer commercial? It's always young, attractive people, you know, having a lot of fun with frogs and lizards and other mm-hmm. kinds of talking things that are designed more to appeal to young people than they are, you know, to, um, to, to adults. So, you know, the marketing influences on kids, even the slogan of some tobacco companies, like you've come a long way, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, what that really does is that slogan makes the right to smoke synonymous with the right to vote. Uh, you know, that's not the kind of a message we want yeah. our kids to get. After this short break, Glenn Levant's advice to parents whose kids chose not to just say no. Now back to my 1998 conversation with Glenn Levant. What do you do about it? You know, once it's happened is you do the very best you can. You know, you you probably want to seek some counseling. Uh, You want to keep your temper, you know, certainly when you're dealing with these issues. You definitely want to keep your temper. And... I know that you've probably modified your lifestyle a little bit to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is absolutely essential. If you just close your eyes and say, maybe it'll go away in a year or two, it's just going to lead to a downward spiral. So you're, you're doing right. And, you know, that's, that's the commendable thing that you're doing. Well, what is the proper parental reaction when you've done the best you could? The kids have been through dare and when they were in the fourth grade, fifth, fifth grade, sixth grade, and yet they come home when they're in the eighth grade and you discover either a pack of cigarettes in their pocket or worse in their pocket or you smell alcohol in their breath. What should you, how, how, what should you say? What should you do? Well, the first thing is to count to 10 and, uh, and keep your temper because most parents are going to feel like they're betrayed when they discover this and shocked, shocked and, and betrayed. So the next thing you do is that you do an assessment of the situation, but use your head, not your heart when you're doing an assessment. You know, you love your children and you, you want to believe that this isn't happening. And it's very difficult, but it, 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 it's mostly true, mostly true that your children will be deceitful with you. They'll tell you that it's not their cigarettes, they're just holding them for a friend, or that they weren't really drinking, just someone spilled something on them at a party. But they'll come up with the most transparent of excuses, and you, you, you have to take a look at that analytically and say, no, this, this, this isn't right. We've got, a, we've got an issue here we have to deal with. The next thing you do is you make a determination if this is something that your family can cope with as a family, or if it's beyond you know, what, what you think you can deal with. Don't be ashamed. Be grateful that there is professional help available. And we talk about some how to get help in, in the book. If you, if you need it, you can get help from the yellow pages, uh, you know, your local, your local county services. You can get help from the schools. You can get help from some of the 800 numbers of organizations that we, that we talk about. But the important thing, much like you've done, is that you've got to adjust your life at that point. You've got to adjust your life so that you deal with this problem immediately. And that, and that's all you can do. It, you can be successful. You can work your way out of it. Uh, it's no stigma attached to the fact that this happens. It happens millions of times every year. But, you know, take the time to deal with it. 
parents need to understand it, it can happen to nice families. And it does on a daily basis. The biggest myth in the country today is that this only happens in inner cities, or this only happens to parents that don't care. It's a myth, absolute myth. It happens everywhere. There's no demographic differential, um, not only in this country, but any country in the world as to where this, this problem can arise and, and, and fester. Have you seen that, that TV commercial that uh, shows the kids skateboarding through this nice suburban manicured lawn neighborhood and the voiceover says 40% uh, of America's drug abuse happens in the inner city. And then the two kids sit down on the curb and they're smoking a joint and the other says, and the voiceover says, guess where the other 60% occurs? Well, it's absolutely true. <laughs> and uh, some people just think that because it's not visible to them mm-hmm. that it's not happening. Well, um, let, well, let me ask you what now. Now, my kids are, are beyond elementary school age, and you know, as far as cigarettes go, and and, and that they they're kind of beyond the age of prevention. What can I do to help other parents of younger kids? What can I do in my neighborhood? Because there's a lot of small children in my neighborhood. Uh, I'm a true believer in in talking to people, and um, you know, a lot of people have little neighborhood coffee clutches and things like that, and a lot of people offer good advice and some people offer bad advice you know to neighbors about things i'm not saying be a budinsky you know here but you know most people that take their kids to school you know have got some time to stand around wait to pick up the kids you know wait for something to drop off you know use that time to try and to try and be helpful you know with people and let them profit from your experiences uh in my in my opinion um we do a disservice uh, you know it's okay um to talk to people. You know, we don't have to be strangers in our own neighborhoods. Um, and the more we get involved in community, the more we get involved, when I say community, in religious institutions and schools, you know, these types of things, the better off, you know, we'll all be. Do you realistically see a day in our, in our lifetime when most young people will choose to say no to drugs? I really think that we're well on the way, but I believe it's going to take another 20 years to achieve this. When I started uh, the Dare America organization in 83, we had 23 million users of drugs in this country. 23 million. Staggering number. We still have 23 million users of drugs in the United States. But they're aging. They're aging. And, you know, when you're dealing with something that's going to take a generation or so, we'll never eliminate the problem. But we will get it down from 23 million, which is totally epidemic, unmanageable proportions, to something that this nation can deal with. If we had perhaps 3 million, 2 million drug abusers, mm-hmm. you know, we could really, really cope with that situation, provide treatment to people that need treatment, and all these other things. But right now, drug abuse by those 23 million people costs the rest of us $2,000 each a year for every living person in the country. We're paying for their bad habits. And you can find an easy Amazon link to Keeping Kids Drug-Free in the show notes or at our website, heardeverything.com. Now, would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, if you liked any of this week's episodes or any of our episodes generally, would you please tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we're launching what I'm calling For Pete's Sake Week. All three of the interviews I'm going to feature next week on Now I've Heard Everything are with a gentleman named Pete. 
Starting on Monday with the director of such Hollywood classics as Paper Moon, The Last Picture Show, What's Up, Duck, Peter Bogdanovich. The chase was 12 minutes. We took four weeks to shoot it. Even when they jumped into, when when the cars went into the bay at the end of that sequence, (laughs) uh, that was real. In fact, we didn't even cheat. We didn't even undercrank it. We didn't speed it up. We actually shot it. They were going 70 miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite something. (laughs) That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.